Uh, this week, we're going to finish up our little trilogy on what I'm calling theological anthropology, and that's what's God's vision for the human person. What does God say about our bodies and who we are as people? Uh, as a refresher, it's um, that area in systematic theology that deals with God's view of the human person. So all the uh, issues of our day that are very controversial right now fall under this uh, distinction. And from the outset, let me say um, <clears throat> I'm not an expert in the area of race. Uh, I've read some about what we'll discuss today, but I'm by no means a subject matter expert. But what I can do is go to the Bible and think through how the Bible guides us in navigating these pressing concerns. So race and racism, I don't need to tell you this, is uh, in its American context, is one of the most hotly contested issues in American public life. And of course, given our history, why would it not be? So Condoleezza Rice, former Secretary of State, often writes about what she calls America's birth defect, what she calls slavery. And other writers speak of slavery as America's original sin. And the mistreatment of blacks in America didn't go away after the end of the Civil War. Uh, the subjugation and supposed inferiority of black Americans was reinforced through white supremacist structures of racially segregated era during Jim Crow. And of course, the issue of racism uh, isn't only concerned with whites and blacks in this country. We also would talk about mistreatment of Native Americans or Asian Americans. So today, uh, we can talk about racial disparities in incarceration or police brutality, criminal justice, criminal justice reform. Uh, there's a debate in public schools right now over what's called critical race theory. There's this whole discussion over notions of white guilt and white privilege. And in Christian circles, there's lots of talk over what's called racial reconciliation or multi-ethnic churches. And if we were go go through each of those issues, it would be, uh, just like this morning, an enormous amount of material and information. You could take a whole semester going through each of those issues. So what I want to do this, this afternoon is to just help give us a biblical framework for thinking about race and racism. And along the way, we'll discuss some of those issues, but not all of them. Uh, it's simply just impossible and impractical to do so. But... From the beginning, I should say that the Bible is foundational to our understanding of race and racism. And some people might say, well, how could you say that the Bible is foundational to understand race and racism when people have often used the Bible to reinforce racial prejudice or to justify slavery? And, you know, some people in our culture, even those in the church, would say that uh, Christianity is a white Western imperialist religion. And unfortunately, it is a sad fact that some people have misused the Bible uh, to justify those things. And Christians can't run from that history. We can't rewrite that history. History is full of our failings. Uh, there's a professor at Southern who likes to say the historian's job is to tell the truth. And sometimes it's ugly. And that's something that even our denomination, the SBC, 
has to come to terms with. Uh, for those who don't know, the SBC has its origins in support of slavery in the South. So our denomination is somewhat complicit in this history. And we have to be honest about that. And I would just encourage you, there's two uh, documents that I think are really good that um, I'd encourage you to read. The first is a resolution that was passed in 1995 on race and racial reconciliation on the 150th anniversary of the SBC. Um, and there in that document, we publicly acknowledged and repented of our complicity in racism. Uh, another document was published in 2018. This was a report at Southern Seminary, just one of the SBC seminaries. Um, and that report outlines that the founding faculty of that school, all four of them, were deeply complicit in slavery. Uh, they, some of them owned slaves themselves and were committed to the defense of slavery. And it's not a defense of that reality, but that would also be true of almost any other university at the time in America. So Princeton Theological Seminary, for instance. Um, it's the same thing. And that just shows us how ubiquitous um, slavery was in early America. And so that's one reason why it's important for us to study history, because we can look at the past and we can make judgments based on our current perceived superiority, moral high ground, on what we consider to be such obvious matters today. But the reality is that uh, we too, right now, are pl prone to have blinders on. And so uh, we can make judgments knowing that we too are going to be judged by people in the future. And, and so we look at the failings of the past, but it helps us have moral clarity in the present. But that's just one side of the history. The other side of the Southern Baptist history is also comprised of repentance and humility, and it tells the story of God's amazing grace. So it really is remarkable to consider that a denomination that has its origins in the support of slavery would elect its first black president to lead the conven convention in 2012. And that wasn't just uh, posturing or symbolic or anything like that. Uh, and mentioning that fact, again, is not to suggest uh, that all of our issues with race are, are over, far from. But it is a story of God's redempt redemptive grace. And today, the SBC is one of the most ethnically diverse Protestant denominations in America. And so while it's true there have been failings, major failings, throughout church history, uh, the idea that Christianity is a white Western imperialist religion is just not historical. And it doesn't actually rec reckon with what the New Testament shows us. And it shows us that the faith was this multi-ethnic movement from the very beginning. Let us not forget that Jesus was in fact a Middle Eastern Jew, uh, despite you know, what you might see in Western art, where Jesus is white, uh, long flowing beard, and all the rest. But looking at uh, the data today uh, and the trajectory of global demographics, the future of Christianity is that it's trending toward women of color actually making up the majority of the world's Christians. So that's 
really the future of Christianity is that demographic. And all of that reflects God's heart for people of every tribe, tongue, and nation that everyone might know Christ and join in salvation's song. So that's just setting the, the foundation for this afternoon. So let me give you a brief outline of what we'll seek to cover today. First, we need to go, um, we need to get much further and provide a few definition of some key terms, and then I'll present the biblical framework for thinking about race. And we'll discuss uh, a biblical affirmation of what's called human particularity, and I'll, I'll define what that is, and how that stands in contrast to something like intersectionality, which is a, a concept in critical race theory, and we'll define all of that. Um, and then f- we'll end with a little uh, Christian assessment of critical race theory as a worldview, and what are the pitfalls of that. So here's some definitions. Uh, there's a very important New Testament word, and it's ethne. It means uh, peoples or nations. So most famously, it's found in the Great Commission in Matthew 28 when Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations, all the ethne, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So that's what the word means. It doesn't mean uh, like a nation like the United States, but it, it refers to a people group. And so you can see the connection of where we get our word ethnicity. And specifically, in Matthew 28, when Jesus gives that command, um, ethne is most likely referring to Gentiles, so non-Jewish peoples. Jesus was a light for the revelation to the Gentiles. His gospel is good news that people of every tribe, tongue, and nation can share in the covenant promises of his redemptive work on the cross. And I think that Greek word, ethne, is helpful as we discuss race and ethnicity today. So we might ask, well, what's the, what's the difference between race and ethnicity? Are they synonymous? And these terms have been debated, um, but here's how I think about them. I think historically, <clears throat> the word race has been narrowly focused on biological or genetic differences among people, and <clears throat> it separates people on kind of arbitrary physiological features. And the word ethnicity would focus more on cultural or linguistic differences among people. And in this discussion, I think the term ethnicity is better because, I, one, I think it fits the language in the Bible with its focus on multi-ethnic people. And so basically, the Bible doesn't separate people based on physiological features alone. It, it speaks of peoples in the sense of a social, cultural uh, group. So it speaks of the Jews or the Samaritans, Syrophoenicians, Gentiles, and all of those groups are multi-ethnic. And so, yes, there are biological distinctions, but often those are arbitrary, because really we, we all belong to the single human race, and all of us equally are made in God's image. So here's a few definitions. Uh, Racism is an ideology that creates a hierarchy of superiority 
and inferiority among ethnic groups. And what makes racism a heinous sin is that it ignores our basic common humanity and it falsely classifies people into superior and inferior groups drawn along superficial lines. Now, systemic racism, basically, here's how I think about it. It's the idea that the legacy of racism, whether it's from slavery or Jim Crow, still leaves ripple effects in society today. Psychologically, emotionally, economically, politically. And so, to believe in systemic racism doesn't mean you're woke. I simply think that in some respects it's a reality. And an example of this would be um, the history of housing in African Americans. So Jim Crow was this legal racist system set in opposition against blacks. They were kept from getting loans, kept out of certain neighborhoods, and this led to generational socioeconomic problems, even though today those laws have changed. And so we're still dealing with ripple effects of that racist legacy. So that's how I would see and define systemic racism. So I don't think systemic racism means that every institution in America is actively racist or seeking to oppress ethnic minorities. I wouldn't agree with that definition. Um, But I do think, and I would acknowledge, um, there are serious, disastrous, generational social effects of our racist history. And then lastly, just to clarify, I think it's always important to keep in mind that we think theologically about racism. So sociology is helpful, uh, but we can't reduce racism to a purely sociological phenomenon. Uh, We have to think of racism in theological terms. And two key uh, theological concerns that are connected to racism um, is that it's a result of sin and the total depravity of man. So uh, to say that racism is rooted in sin uh, should not minimize the reality of social problems. Sometimes people say this is a sin issue. But we can't forget that we are dealing with something deeper than sociology. So racism is a universal problem that affects us all because all of us are marked by sin. And racism can occur in various social groups. Um, It can occur individually or systemically in any ethnic group. And so therefore, all of us need a theological solution to this. And the Bible, the good news of Jesus, really is the only liberating path that offers hope and redemption to this sin of racism. So what are the the foundational biblical passages on racism? Well, the Bible teaches that every human life is sacred. Every human life is of equal and immeasurable value as human beings are made in God's image, Genesis 1, 27. And one feature of this image of God is that we're uniquely created for relationship with God, and that would extend to all ethnicities. All embodied image bearers are made for relationship with God. And so in terms of salvation given to us through Christ, all of us are equal. 
So Galatians 3.28 says, There's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's no male and female, for you are all one in Christ. So that's not advocating for uniformity or sameness, but it's suggesting that when it comes to our standing before Christ, no human marker of identity or no boundary marker privileges one person over the other. All of us are equal at the foot of the cross. Now, another important text, and this was especially important for black abolitionists and later integrationists during Jim Crow, was Acts 17.26. It says, And he made from one man of every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. So this verse appeals to our common humanity. And each of us, though we share this basic common humanity, we're also uniquely designed by God. So the psalmist in Psalm 139 proclaims, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. So that psalm is a great passage that reveals to us how each individual person has been wonderfully made by God to reflect and to represent him in the world. Now, those are just isolated texts, but if you're looking for just a large biblical survey over this issue, uh, I would recommend this book uh, by Jarvis Williams. He's a professor of New Testament at Southern Seminary. He's a black professor. Um, He's written this book called Redemptive Kingdom Diversity, And really, it's great if you're looking for a biblical theology about the multi-ethnic people of God. So biblical theology is the big storyline of the Bible. And so he goes from Genesis through Revelation to show how God's heart and his desire has always been to restore diverse humanity's relationship with himself and relationships among other people. So those are some foundational texts and concepts to understand a a biblical framework for thinking about race and ethnicity. And in them, I think we see how God has made us individually and uniquely in his image. So as we think about how God has intricately designed each one of us, we can properly and rightly think about uh, what our friend Greg Allison calls human particularity. So Allison would say that human particularity refers to the human individual. Each one of us is a unique individual human being. Now, that doesn't mean we're autonomous, accountable only to ourselves. That's not the kind of individuality he's talking about. Uh, But he's, he's emphasizing the particular features of our embodiment. So me and Elizabeth, yes, we are one but I am still a unique individual, just as she is. So I'm not her, she is not me. So it's very basic. It sounds very basic. Uh, But human particularity would explore all the facets of our identity, uh, all the small and large details of our existence. So here are some common features about how we can think about our particularity. And all of this comes from Allison's book, called embodied. He outlines uh, 
We can think of our particularity in terms of our race or ethnicity, our family, our heritage, our kinship. We can think of our particularity in terms of time and space, our social context, and then our story. So thinking through all of those, here's an example about the particularities of my identity. So I'm a white male of English ancestry. I was born in Abilene, Texas to Jim and Patty Lewis. I have an older brother and sister. I'm married to Elizabeth. I'm 30 years old. I'm a millennial. I'm from the Midwest. That's time and space. I was raised in Kansas, so that environment has shaped my outlook on the world. In terms of my social context, uh, I belong to the middle class. Politically, I'm a conservative. I'm a PhD student at a Southern Baptist seminary. I would consider myself an evangelical Christian. And then my story would be how I tie all of those aspects of my particularity together. So it really is a great exercise for you to go through those and think through the particularities of who God has made you to be. I think it's pretty remarkable, even in this room, the amount of diversity that we would see. So what I'm describing, this human particularity, can sound somewhat similar to what is called intersectionality. But human particularity stands in contrast to intersectionality and critical race theory. So intersectionality is one of the concepts that belongs to critical race theory. So here here are some important definitions. What is critical race theory? Is it a myth? Is Is it a threat to Christianity? What is it? Well, critical race theory belongs to a wider academic discipline known as critical theory. Chances are you've heard things that are associated with this even if you're unfamiliar with the discipline. So critical theory is especially prevalent at the modern university, it's opened up entirely new academic disciplines. So queer theory, post-colonialism, women's studies. It brings a whole vocabulary with it. Uh, Heteronormativity, hegemony, cisgender, ambiguity, fluidity, whiteness, um, deconstruction, other. So it has this whole language that accompanies it. But rather than understanding critical race theory as purely an academic discipline or a political movement or an ideological phenomenon, it really is best to understand it as a worldview. It's a comprehensive worldview for interpreting reality. And we'll we'll come back to this and discuss critical race theory as a worldview here in a little bit. But essentially, this worldview interprets reality through a Marxist analysis of power. And I use that term Marxist as a descriptive term, Um, not trying to be pejorative. But Christians need to be cautious with throwing about labels because we can discuss things like this and we can be easily misunderstood. But a traditional Marxist analysis would be economic. So it would look at class distinctions through the lens of power. So it it would say you have the working class over here and you have the super wealthy over here, and it would categorize people into the oppressed and oppressor. And that's how it interprets reality. And critical theory would take that same balance of power between the oppressed and oppressor 
and it would apply it across the board to all various social contexts, whether it's in race and ethnicity or sex and gender. And so, as an example, in like literature, when I was an English major at Wichita State, you would take something beautiful, like a Jane Austen novel, and basically you would just scour the text looking for hidden structures of power, looking for ways women were oppressed or whatever. And so you, you take this view and you apply it to the social sciences. You're looking at ways in which people in powerful positions seek to hold, hold on to their power and to keep others in submission. And so a central concept to CRT is called uh, intersectionality. And it's crazy. <laughs> um, so I remember my time at WSU and Men and Masculinities. There was a graduate teaching assistant had a t-shirt that said something about how the revolution will be intersectionality. So it, it comes from a feminist thinker, Kimberly Crenshaw, from an article in 1989. But here's the definition. Basically, it's about the interconnected nature of social categorizations such as race, class, gender, and how they apply to given individual or a group, regarding as creating overlapping and independent systems of discrimination or disadvantage. Now that sounds very confusing. So here's a definition that you'll understand. Really, it's about how the idea is about how various aspects of our identities overlap and can create greater degrees of discrimination or privilege. So for example, it, it would be argued, not only do women face discrimination, but it's women of color, and not only women of color, but trans women of color. So every feature of your identity would have these overlapping degrees of discrimination across all your aspects of human particularity. And that discrimination or, or those degrees of privilege and power would compound on themselves. And there's actually a, a intersectionality score website that you can visit online. And according to that, my intersectionality score is four, and a low score is very bad, according to this website. So according to that, I am 99% more privileged than others. And when it told me my score, it also said, please give more to those less fortunate. So here in a little bit, I'll talk about some of the deficiencies with critical worldview. But you know, on that view, what are you supposed to do with that information? If that is my problem, that I am privileged, how do I find redemption? And what's the solution? Because I can, I can beat my chest and I can repent of my privilege, I can educate myself, but all I really can do in the end is do what that website told me. Please give more to those less fortunate. So as I said, human particularity can sound somewhat similar to intersectionality. So what do we do with this? Well, here's the difference. I would say that the Bible affirms our particularities, all the small details of our identity. But the key difference, as Allison notes, is that intersectionality emphasizes the differences that divide us whereas focusing on our particularity emphasizes the common features of our humanity. And chief among them would be that all of us have equal dignity and value 
as being made in God's image. So where in the Bible do we find human particularity? I've addressed some of these already. Um, Acts 17, 26, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined the allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling. And so this, that verse, the Acts verse, illustrates a number of the areas of our particularity, our race and ethnicity, our family and kinship, our time and space, our social context. So God in his sovereignty has made us born to the parents that he ordained and he placed us in the specific time and place according to his good pleasure. Or Psalm 139 beautifully expresses God's intricate design for each one of us. For you formed my inward parts, you knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. God has ordained every detail of our our being. Or we might consider uh, the particularity of Jesus' incarnation. So Galatians 4 says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. So that, that's the, the fullness of time was waiting for Jesus' incarnation. And Jesus' particular identity and all the features of his identity open the door so that all peoples, all the ethne, could be beneficiaries of his covenant. And he launches this global redemptive movement so that people from every tribe, tongue, and nation would be part of God's family. And so in that respect, uh, diversity is a part of God's redemptive purposes. It's a kingdom diversity. From the beginning, God has been working to restore humanity after the fall, to make a new humanity, and that new humanity is exemplified in Jesus. God has restored our relationship with himself, but it's also his intention to restore relationships with each other, both Jews and Gentiles. So there's that vertical and horizontal relationship, love God and love people. And so as we put on Christ, we as a church are one body. So there is unity there, but it's not sameness or uniformity. It's a rich diversity that displays the manifold working of God's grace. We are all God's redeemed people. Now, I said we would talk about critical race theory as a worldview and offer some criticisms. And I think there are some pitfalls to this worldview. And again, my, my intent is not to uh, throw around labels um, or to be inflammatory on purpose. That's not my intent. But a worldview is the lens through which you interpret reality. And every worldview answers some of life's basic questions. Those are some examples of worldview questions. What is reality? Who are we? What's our problem? What happens when we die? What's the meaning of life? And so 
the Christian worldview gives us this meta-narrative. It gives us this big story. And the big story of the Bible moves from creation, fall, redemption, to recreation. We are made in God's image. We're sinful. We're in need of redemption. That's our problem. Christ's blood atones for our sin, reconciles us to God, and restores us to relationship with God. And what happens when we die? What's, what's our future? Well, we're awaiting the fullness of the kingdom of God, the new heavens, and the new earth. Now, critical theory ultimately gives us a meta-narrative of reality, but it moves from, instead of creation, fall, redemption, it moves from oppression to liberation. And so the world is stripped of any transcendence and it's flattened into purely social dimensions. So in critical theory's worldview, there really isn't a category for sin, a theological category. It's simply just oppression and various social ills. So critical race theory's worldview would say we live in a fallen world marked by oppression. That oppression is heteronormativity or patriarchy, classism, white supremacy. That's our problem, social injustice. And how do we address it? Well, through political activism, through protest, through education and awareness. And what's its vision of the future? What's its eschatology? The right side of history. History is marching or progressing to the right side, to this vision of a utopia where there's peace and justice and equality. Those things in themselves aren't bad, but that's just its worldview. So one of the major problems with this as a worldview is that it functions as a religion, but it tells a narrative that informs me of my guilt, but it offers an entirely works-based form of redemption. So the sad thing is you'll never fully arrive at that redemption because it's a narrative of all guilt and no hope. I am white. I'm guilty of whiteness, a systemic form of white supremacy by my merely being white, and I will always be racist. All I can do is acknowledge my whiteness and my privilege. I can apologize for it. I can educate myself. I can listen to the voices of other ethnic minorities but I will never eradicate myself of guilt. I can engage in various protests. I can stick yard signs in my front lawn. I can stand in solidarity with others. I can post things on my Facebook wall. But really, I am always and forever guilty of being white. And at best, I can only do what my intersectionality score website told me to do, is please give more to those less fortunate. So it's a narrative of collective guilt. And all you have to do is look at the bloody history of the 20th century to see how disastrous collective guilt is when applied to society. And so that's, that's one of the major flaws of critical race theory as a worldview. It's a, it's a grand narrative of oppression and liberation. That that's, looks at the world and that's how it interprets reality. It's a narrative of guilt and no hope, and no redemption. 
So I want to share a, a lengthy quote from Herman Bovink. Um, he was writing 100 years before critical race theory, and the quote doesn't have anything to do with critical race theory, but I think it's uh, an example um, of something that's really applicable to this whole context. So here's, here's what he says. It is truly not scripture alone that judges humans harshly. It is human beings who have pronounced the harshest and most severe judgment on themselves. And it is always better to fall into the hands of the Lord than into those of people, for his mercy is great. For when God condemns us, he at the same time offers his forgiving love in Christ. But when people condemn people, they frequently cast them out and make them the object of scorn. When God condemns us, he has this judgment brought to us by people, prophets and apostles and ministers, who do not elevate themselves to a level high above us, but include themselves with us in a common confession of guilt. By contrast, philosophers and moralists, in despising people, usually forget that they themselves are human. When God condemns, he speaks of sin and guilt that, though great and heavy, can be removed because they do not belong to the essence of humanity. But moralists frequently speak of egoistic animal tendencies that belong to humans by virtue of their origin and are part of their essence. They put people down, but do not lift them up. And I think, I think that quote is an example of what we see happening in society today. The Christian narrative speaks of condemnation, of sin that separates us from God, but at the same time, whenever there's condemnation, there's also this pronouncement of forgiveness through Christ. There's possibility of repentance, atonement, and restoration. That's very different from a woke ideology of all guilt and no atonement. So, what aspects of critical race theory might prove to be useful connections for Christian engagement? So, so what's our middle ground as we interact with people who maybe hold to this worldview? Um, I, I created a document that Rodney will post eventually that has a few um, articles and books for each topic that I've gone through on Sundays. And um, I, this article is on that document. So um, this is an article by Jonathan Lehman. He writes for Nine Marks. It's an online ministry. Um, and basically, this article is out there if you want to read more deeply. And he talks about this idea. But basically, he outlines three uh, points of engagement that Christians can have with the critical race theory worldview. Uh, the first would be, Critical race theory views the world uh, through this lens of oppression and injustice. And what Lehman says as well, what can Christians do with that? Christians can affirm the pervasiveness of sin. The doctrine of sin teaches us that all of us are sinful at birth, and all the aspects of our being and our world are marked by the reality and tragedy of sin. The second point that Lehman makes is that Christianity points to true unity, reconciliation, and hope. 
So as I've been beating this dead horse, critical race theory gives us a narrative of guilt with no redemption. Christianity gives us a narrative of guilt, forgiveness, redemption, and transformation. And then the third point of connection would be that justice is a central concern of the Bible. And sometimes Christians can squirm when you mention justice, but that shouldn't be the case. Because, of course, uh, sometimes the language of justice can make us uncomfortable because maybe it's a reaction against liberal theology. But we should recognize that social justice flows out of sound doctrine. So I recently read a fascinating book called Black Fundamentalists, and it was about fundamentalism in the early 1900s in evangelicalism. And the history typically says that this movement was purely a white, cultural, social movement, but it ignores uh, blacks who indeed embrace the label fundamentalist. And so the author of this book argues that fundamentalism needs to be understood as a doctrinal or religious movement that expresses itself in various social contexts. And so what's interesting is the white fundamentalists took this militant cultural stance in the culture wars. They were embattled in school fights over teaching evolution and things like that. But the black fundamentalists of the time shared the same conservative theological convictions, but because of those convictions, they were engaged in things like voting rights and racial equality. And so my point is to say that their concern for justice, their biblical concern for justice and social activism flowed out of sound doctrine. So uh, where do we go from here? Well, I talked about this when um, the first week when we discussed living in a post-truth age. I think the bottom line is to seek to be faithful in your sphere of influence, speaking the truth in love. And that may sound simplistic. Uh, some people might say, well, that answer is too individualistic. Uh, but I've also said in previous weeks that the gospel must be holistic. Uh, it, the gospel meets both spiritual and material needs. And so, uh, basically, it's, it's appropriate to recognize social problems, but don't overemphasize the social problems. I think um, faithfulness is in the realm of what I can control in my individual relationships with others as I love God and love people. So I don't think that's reducing this to a merely individual sin problem. But I think as we build relationships, um, you can advocate and participate in social action as you see fit. Uh, but again, faithfulness is in the realm of what I can control. I can be faithful to love God and love others as God brings people into my life and as God calls me to engage with people who are different from me. So I think um, that's all I have for you so we can open it up to any questions because I know you probably have some.